If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Rob Breckenridge with the afternoons on 770 CHQR. Welcome to this hour of the program. Much more still to get to, including your calls at 403-974-8255. At the top in this hour, though, I want to talk about, I think, really what is a story about the opioid epidemic. And it's no surprise, obviously, that uh, prescription painkillers and abuse of those painkillers, the addiction caused by overprescription of those painkillers, has been a real driving force in that epidemic. You might recall late last year, it's a big development in the United States. The company Purdue Pharma agreed to plead guilty, has reached a a multi-billion dollar settlement with the U.S. government for their role in all of this. There's a story behind that story, though. It's the subject of an event taking place tomorrow night at WordFest.com, part of WordFest's Imagine On Air series. Award-winning New Yorker journalist Patrick radden Keefe has written a new book, called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Well, who are the Sacklers, you might be wondering, and perhaps it's that question uh, that deserves an answer, because they are very much a big part of this story, perhaps an undertold part of this story. So joining us to talk more about uh, his book, and as mentioned, uh, you can uh, take part in this event 7 p.m. tomorrow night, more at wordfest.com. Patrick Radden Keefe joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Patrick, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. You know, it's interesting because uh, the Sackler family, in a way, I mean, it's it's like they want the spotlight. Their name adorns many institutions, universities, museums, you know, the Louvre, for example. But at the same time, they seem very secretive. Is Is it a contradiction in a way? Yeah, it's a strange irony with this family, and it actually goes back decades. I was able to trace this as far back as the 1950s that... There was a a big kind of philanthropic tradition in this family where they loved to give money to the arts and to the sciences, always with the insistence that their name be put on things, whether it was an art gallery or a a university building. And yet at the same time, they always tended to keep their name off of the family business. And so, you know, people generally were kind of aware of them as this very wealthy, generous family, but, but there was a lot of uncertainty about how it was that they even made their money. Well, that's, yeah, and that's a question. I mean, why wasn't it uh, why isn't it uh, Sackler Pharma that we're talking about? Uh, we're talking about Purdue Pharma. There's an obvious, and as you say, probably a deliberate attempt to to have some some disassociation between the two. Yeah, that was certainly what I found was that you know the Sackler family. It really starts out with these three brothers, Arthur, Raymond, and Mortimer, and they were all doctors. They grew up in Brooklyn during the Great Depression, and they were physicians, but they were also businessmen. And what they really started doing was developing all kinds of different businesses where they had a pharmaceutical company, but they also had a company that uh, specialized in pharmaceutical advertising. And they were doing medical research, and they had 
uh, medical newspapers. So lots and lots of conflicts of interest. And I think they learned early on that it's much better to be kind of a silent partner, to have a hand in a business and a stake in the business, but not necessarily have the world know that that's your business. And so that was a, a kind of a practice that I was able to trace over really more than half a century in the history of this family. I mean, how wealthy is this family? What kind of stratosphere are they in? Are we talking about, you know, Rockefeller dynasty kind of, of wealth, or where, where do they fit in? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's impossible to say for sure, in part because they're so secretive. Um, but, you know, For- Forbes magazine estimated a few years ago that the, the, the family, the two branches of the family that have been involved with Purdue Pharma um, are worth about $14 billion. Um, we know for sure, because this has all been um, demonstrated in court proceedings, that over the course of uh, the last decade or so alone, and you know, I think it was about over the course of about eight years, the family pulled more than $10 billion out of their company, Purdue Pharma. So this is a very, very wealthy dynasty. And how involved are they, right? I mean, it speaks to, to their connection to all of this, because much has been documented about OxyContin and about Purdue Pharma and how they marketed this, how they pushed this, what they knew, and, and all of these points. But to what extent does it involve the family? To what extent were they involved in, in all of this? So the family argues uh, now that they played a very minimal role, that they basically just collected all the riches that were spun off by this company and yes, it's true that they were on the board, but, you know, they didn't really know all that much about what was going on, and they were just voting on things. Um, and they had kind of an arm's length with their own uh, relationship with their own company. Um, I found in interviewing over 200 people, many of whom had worked at the company or worked for the family, and pouring over tens of thousands of pages of documents that have come out through litigation, that that's not true. That picture that they paint of having a kind of arm's length relationship with Purdue uh, is really at odds with the evidence. What the evidence shows is a number of the family members really micromanaging the company. So for a period of time, Richard Sackler, who's from the kind of a second generation Sackler, was actually running the company himself. Then he sort of steps back and appoints a protege of his to to be the CEO. But even after that, he was just fanatically intervening in the in the internal affairs of the company, as were a number of uh, his his cousins. Um, so I think that the there's a kind of a difference between the story that the family tells about their involvement and the reality that I was able to to ascertain and and uh, substantiate in this book. It's also the story of OxyContin itself, and obviously they didn't invent oxycodone. But the, the, the story is, is very much about OxyContin and what this company was able to create around this drug. So wh- where did the creation of, of OxyContin come from? Well, so OxyCodone, as you say, was not a new drug. It's an opioid painkiller, so it's, uh, it's related to the opium poppy. Um, and what happened was that in the 1990s, Purdue Pharma introduces this new drug, OxyContin. And what was novel about it was that you could have a really big dose of OxyCodone. Uh, and the theory was there was a special 
coating, a special shell on those pills that would allow the drug to slowly filter into your bloodstream over the course of 12 hours. Now, up to that point, doctors had tended to be pretty careful about prescribing strong opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even morphine, which was not as strong as OxyContin, doctors were careful about prescribing. They tended to reserve it for pretty cases of pretty severe pain, cancer pain, uh, end-of-life care, situations like that. And what Purdue did was go out and say, we want to devise a pill here that won't just be for cancer pain and really, really severe situations. This will be for moderate pain, too. So people who are injured on the job, they have back pain, uh, you know, arthritis, any number of conditions, sports injuries. They estimated that that market in the U.S. alone was 40 to 50 million people. And so that was the market they wanted to go after. The problem with targeting that huge market is that physicians tended to be cautious about prescribing such strong opioids to those types of patients. So what Purdue did, and this was very much, uh, you know, with the, with the knowledge um, and understanding of the Sacklers who were dominating the company at that point, was they started a campaign to persuade doctors that actually these drugs aren't addictive. And they sent an army of sales reps out across the U.S., across Canada. They talked to thousands and thousands of doctors. And I've interviewed a lot of these former sales reps, and what they would say is, you know, Doc, we've done studies on this, and, and if it's prescribed by a doctor for pain, this drug is addictive less than 1% of the time. So that turns out not to be true, but that was very much the marketing pitch for the drug, and it was fantastically successful. So successful that not only did OxyContin generate $35 billion in revenue, but other strong opioid painkillers came on the market, and doctors who'd sort of been softened up by this marketing pitch started really massively over-prescribing these drugs. Yeah, I think it was 2012, the Canada took OxyContin off the market, but um, a lot of similar drugs ended up filling some of that void. And I do wonder then, I mean, you know, once you've created this situation where millions of people are using it, people are becoming dependent or even addicted on it, and all of a sudden you you start to pull it out of the market, and it, it did get harder to get, but what were the consequences of that? Well, this is one of the terrible ironies of this story, is that, uh, you know, the, the 1990s and the, the kind of early aughts uh, are a period of time in which you have massive overprescribing. And then you start to see things start tightening up. Doctors get more cautious. The police get more vigilant. There's um, pill mills that get shut down. Uh, and in fact, Purdue Pharma ends up reformulating OxyContin to make it more difficult to abuse. So the pills are harder to crush and override that time release mechanism in 2010. The problem was that all of these changes came too late and had this kind of perverse outcome, which is that you had a huge population of people, as you say, uh, in the U.S. and in Canada, who by that point were addicted to opioids, and the on-ramp for them had been prescription pills. And as it gets harder to secure those pills or harder to abuse them, what happened was, you know, these people didn't just suddenly go cold turkey and quit. What they did was they migrated to other kinds of opioids. And this is the reason that in 2010, when you have these changes, which are kind of overdue changes to try and address the first wave of the opioid crisis, you start to see the second wave where it morphs into a heroin crisis. And 
I've interviewed, I mean, there are academic studies on this, but I've also just anecdotally interviewed a lot of people who tell stories about going to their dealers who they were used to buying Oxycontin from, black market Oxycontin from, uh, and being told, I can't get, I can't get a supply anymore, but I'll tell you what, I'll sell you a bag, bag of heroin. And so a lot of people started on heroin that way. So when we saw the headlines late last year, you know, Purdue pleads guilty, this $8 billion in, in penalties and forfeitures, and it all sounded really dramatic. Like, you know, we, we kind of caught the bad guy here, but I don't know. And I mean, it gets back to this question of, has this family really been held accountable? I mean, you know, some might perceive all of this as kicking them when they're down, but I don't know. Are they down at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're down in terms of their reputation, but let's just look at, at what you're referring to there. So... Purdue Pharma actually pled guilty to federal crimes in 2007. And at the time, they swore they'd clean up their act. And, you know, when I started writing about them, I wrote a big piece in The New Yorker in 2017. They said, oh, you know, we haven't done anything bad since 2007. We were completely on the up and up now. So it turned out that was a lie, that, that in fact, they were still engaged in all kinds of bad behavior. And they ended up pleading guilty, the company did, in 2020, as you say, to new criminal charges. And there were a lot of headlines that said it was a multi-billion dollar settlement, I think $8 billion, supposedly. Mm -hmm. But anybody who was looking closely at this story knew that by that point, Purdue Pharma didn't have $8 billion. It was down to about a billion dollars, and it was in bankruptcy. What had happened was the Sacklers basically looted their own company. They took all the money out of the company. They took $10 billion out of the company before they kicked it into bankruptcy. And so you end up in this crazy situation in which Purdue pleads guilty to criminal charges. No executives, no individuals plead guilty to anything. It's just the company pleads guilty as if it's a driverless car. And the Sacklers are sitting on the sidelines, sitting pretty with the $10 billion they took out. Uh, they paid, I think, a $220 million fine and admitted no wrongdoing. So... Um, it remains to be seen now what accountability will look like for them. They are proposing that they pay a little over $4 billion to help remediate the opioid crisis, admit no wrongdoing, and be released from any and all future lawsuits uh, related to the opioid crisis. So I, I think if they succeed in that bid, uh, they will have come out of this in pretty decent shape. And in the meantime, what do they make of your work? Surely they're aware... <laughs> Uh, your reporting on this and now the book that you've released, and how has that gone over? Oh, yeah, they, they, <laughs> they hate me. Um, yes. they, uh, they, I mean, needless to say, they did not cooperate with this book in any fashion. Um, one of the branches, of, or there are three branches of the family. Two of them didn't cooperate and, and basically just, just kind of, you know, were, their representatives were polite but wouldn't give me the time of day. Um, the third branch really kind of went to war and They've been threatening to sue me since before I started writing the book. I've gotten dozens of, um, of uh, uh, legal letters and messages from, um, from uh, their attorneys. Um, so, you know, it, this, was, this was not an easy project for me to undertake, um, but I thought it was an important one. And the book is very elaborately uh, endnoted, and, and um, all the documentation is there. And because I was able to speak with so many people, over 200 people, and, and access tens of thousands of pages of documents, company documents and family documents, um, the story is still very much told in, the, in their own words. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that's a, an unpleasant reality for the family. Um, but, uh, but I, I think it's a story I've, I've told with some integrity, and, uh, and I'm glad that I did. 
The book is called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, and as mentioned, this event taking place tomorrow night. Uh, details at wordfest.com. Patrick, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Hey, thanks for having me. All the best. That is uh, award-winning author and journalist Patrick Radden Keefe. His uh, new book, uh, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. An hour-long conversation with him tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. You can uh, be a part of that at wordfest.com. Our number here, 403-974-8255. You're listening to Afternoon Sun 770 CHQR. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.